Ray is a general-purpose distributed computing framework. At a low level, Ray provides fault-tolerant primitives that support applications running across multiple processors. At a higher level, Ray supports scalable reinforcement learning, including the common problem of hyperparameter tuning. In a previous episode, we explored the primitives of Ray as well as AnyScale, which is the business built around Ray, and reinforcement learning. In today's show, Richard Liao explores some of the libraries and applications that sit on top of Ray. RLlib gives it APIs for reinforcement learning, such as policy serving and multi-agent environments. Tune gives developers an easy way to do scalable hyperparameter tuning, which is necessary for exploring different types of deep learning configurations. In a future show, we will explore Tune with Richard in more detail, but today's show is more about Ray and the platform to build on top of Ray. If you're interested in sponsoring Software Engineering Daily, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Also, if you are raising money for a company and your company is targeted at developers or it's an infrastructure company, I am investing in great companies. And you can also send an email to jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Richard Lau, welcome to the show. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yes, it's great to have you. And we're talking today about reinforcement learning and hyperparameter tuning. Describe a typical workflow for reinforcement learning and the developer who is working with reinforcement learning. So I would say the typical workflow for someone who's doing reinforcement learning is that they'll start off with some prototype algorithm because oftentimes the details really matter in reinforcement learning. So it's really important that like a prototype works out of the box. And typically the researcher will create a really simple environment for their algorithm to work in. So now you get to the point where this prototype algorithm works on this really simple environment. What you'll do then is you'll probably add more compute and add maybe like a more intensive environment that the agent is going to operate in. So maybe I should actually take a step back and describe this typical reinforcement learning loop. So the main components of a reinforcement learning algorithm are to have an, a policy which dictates some set of actions that is going to be taken. You have an environment which takes in the actions and provides reward and a current state of the environment. And the policy is going to then take this reward and take this the state and figure out what is the best way to maximize its reward, right? So in that setting, what we're really focused on here is making sure that we slowly make the environment more and more complex so the reinforcement learning agent is able to be crafted to eventually learn on the target, the final environment that we care about. So now that we have, have some context about how reinforcement learning works, going back to the workflow of a reinforcement learning researcher, you'll probably slowly ramp up your environment and make the algorithm more and more complex. Eventually you'll get to a point where you're bound by the amount of compute that you have. So, so that's kind of where, where I've been working on for the last couple of years. We try to provide some tools that allow reinforcement learning researchers to go from this prototype and the small environment that they have to running in a large-scale cluster, leveraging compute resources to spin up really intensive simulations while learning from these environment states. In talking about reinforcement learning, we should explain these terms agent 
and policy. Could you describe those two terms? Yeah, so I think probably those are kind of synonymous. And perhaps there are people who disagree with this, but the policy is it's a mapping. So it's a function that takes in state and outputs in action. So when you typically describe a policy, you'll probably actually be describing a neural network, which takes in something like an image, which characterizes the state of the environment, and then outputs a action, like the best action to take, whether it is to go left or go right or whatever. When we say agent, we kind of, we, I guess, in my mind, it's when we put the policy into play, when we actually use the policy inside a system or something like that. So in that sense, we're kind of humanizing this neural network and saying, hey, look, this thing is actually able to make decisions by itself, even though I guess in code, it'd probably be something like the same thing. Policies are worth exploring a little bit more. So if I'm an agent in a reinforcement learning environment, I'm going to be faced with all kinds of decisions. And the way that I choose to navigate those decisions are defined by my policy. How does a policy get selected? Right. So that's actually a great question. And there's multiple answers to this. So obviously the policy is, again, as we talked about earlier, it's a neural network. There's then two questions, right? There's the question of how do we choose what type of neural network to create in the first place, right? Or to train in the first place. And then there's a second question of how do we train the neural network so that it performs this optimal policy later on, you know, after the training process. And so the answer to the question of how do we select the right policy to begin with or the the right neural network function to begin with, and that's typically through some amount of trial and error and maybe something like hyperparameter tuning where you have some a meta loop that is looking for that tries out different neural network sizes and then selects the best one. Now, what defines the best? Well, what you'll do is you'll take all these different neural networks that you're gonna try out, and then you're going to run them through this reinforcement learning process. And that process itself also has a bunch of parameters, and there's a lot of research being done on the different types of ways you can train each particular neural network. And yeah, so, there generally is some heuristics about, you know, what's the best training process to use, which ones are the most robust. And then there's also general heuristics about like, you know, what type of hyperparameters should I be, how do I select my neural network function in the first place? But I would say there's just a lot of trial and error and a lot of optimization and compute that's required in order to find this ultimate policy that you're going to end up being able to use on your task or environment. So, Every time I do a show on deep learning, I have never programmed anything in deep learning or machine learning. But every time I do one of these shows, I try to explain back in my understanding what the person has just told me. Yeah, sure. And every time I get a little bit closer. So as I understand it, typical machine learning challenge is you've got a bunch of parameters. Like if I'm trying to find the best restaurant to go to on a Saturday night, there's all these different parameters like the kind of food and the star rating and how far it is away from me. So you have this n dimensions and you've got this n-dimensional space okay. that you're exploring and then you have all these examples that sit throughout this n-dimensional space. 
And it's basically a problem that is so computational. You can never actually find the optimal solution to it because it would be too computationally intensive. And so we use these heuristics to just sort of describe how we're going to explore the space of possibilities. And the way in which we are navigating this space is defined by the hyperparameters. And because there are so many ways that we could set the hyperparameters, it's kind of this naively parallelizable problem. And so we parallelize the different hyperparameter examples. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I think most of it is there. I would say, yeah, so this, if we were to take a step back and just talk about this restaurant example, right? In traditional supervised learning, you might be doing something like given characteristics of this restaurant, find like predict something like its star rating, right? And then you have this box, essentially, this box that you can optimize. And the box, not only can you optimize it, but you can also configure some different knobs on the box so that affect the way it's optimized. And those are the knobs that we're describing here on this box are the hyperparameters. And because there's so many different knobs and because we can like try this box out many different times in parallel, then we kind of like converge on this idea of uh, hyperparameter tuning where we just try out a bunch of these boxes with all with like the knobs set to different settings. And then we try to train them on the same data and trying to get it to predict the best, the most accurate way of doing ratings. Okay. And so could you give a few examples of hyperparameters? Right. So in some philosophy, you can kind of characterize almost anything as a hyperparameter, but typical things that people are tuning for hyperparameters into include the learning rate, right? Which dictates how big of an update, basically how fast your machine learning model will train. Another hyperparameter that people tune is the size of your neural network. So you might have a bigger neural network or a small neural network or a wider neural network or something along those lines. Finally, there's different things that we can put inside the neural network, right? We can put in different like nonlinearities which affect the thing that the neural network eventually learns. I think those are probably the big fields of parameter tuning that you're going to encounter. And let's just dive a little bit deeper on one of those hyperparameters. A term you, you hear a lot is the learning rate. Learning rate sounds like something that's great. Like, don't we just want this thing to always learn as fast as possible? Why would we ever want a smaller learning rate? Yeah, so that's actually a really great question. And this sort of the dynamics of learning rate is actually a huge area of research. And it affects both the performance of models and also how we leverage our compute to parallelize and scale this training. So at a very high level, why is learning rate important? We're like, yeah, so why is learning rate important? Why can't we just have a very large learning rate that just tells us exactly where we want to go at any point in time, right? So I would say the answer to that is at a very high level, you can imagine your optimization landscape upon which you're at a certain point, right? And your goal is to minimize your position. And for simplicity's sake, let's say the optimization landscape looks like a bowl. So you're standing somewhere in the bowl, like a rice bowl, and you want to get to the bottom. You can imagine if you take a very large step, a step that's longer than the width of the bowl, then you can step out of the bowl, 
However, if you take a step that's too small, you'll make some progress, but not enough progress. And another thing to note is that as you get closer and closer to the bottom of the bowl, you can't actually maintain the same size of steps that you take. Say you're taking like small steps, but big enough to make progress, right? Eventually you get to the point where you're eventually going to just bounce around in the bottom of the bowl, but never get to the very bottom. So in that stage, it's important to start decreasing your step size. And effectively, this translates to neural network dynamics as this learning rate. Eventually, you want to converge to a, such a small value that allows you to step into the very, very bottom of the bowl. Does that make sense? It does, yes. So you would want the learning rate to be greater as you're further from the bottom of the bowl, and you would want it to be smaller at the bottom of the bowl because you don't want to move past the bottom of the bowl. You really want to hit the ideal spot. Yeah, that's a great, great rehash. Okay. And just to drive this home a little bit further for people who are not very familiar with deep learning, such as myself. So in a deep learning algorithm, so a reinforcement learning run, how do we even know that we're close to the bottom of the bowl? How do we get to the bottom of the bowl? How do we know where the ideal is? How do we strive for that ideal? Yeah, so Jeff, this is a very philosophical question. And oftentimes, you might simply just be in the wrong bowl in the first place, and you'll never know. But what we can know is sort of, we can try to see how close this objective that we're trying to optimize is reflective of the actual test that we want to learn. Let me give you an example. So so say you're, what you're trying to do is you're trying to classify like images, right? And you're given a data set, a bunch of pictures of cats and dogs. Now, when you observe these pictures, you can, you know, you can provide a label to all of them. But the real question that you, you want your neural network to answer is, if I put this neural network out there and, and it can, it's been trained, it should be able to classify a cat and dog whenever, wherever, all the time with perfect accuracy. Now, the problem arises where your data set itself is not actually representative of the real world that you want to deploy your neural network. And so as a result, there's this question of like, there's this research being done on dataset bias. And there's also like a lot of work being done for data collection where the goal is to make sure the dataset is as real and as accurate as it can be, or else you're just simply going to be optimizing the wrong objective. And so, you know, I guess there's also different ways of dividing up your training and your test data, which would be the ways in which the landscape is being defined and the way in which the landscape is being tested. So there's just, I think what's worth noting is just that there are so many different ways that machine learning can be parallelized. I think that's probably relevant for the conversation we're about to have about Ray and some of the libraries built on top of it. Yeah, yeah. So I would say parallelization here. In the example that we just gave about these cats and dogs would simply just be like, if the data set is large enough, how do we cut it and slice it across all these different processors and machines in a way that, you know, like allows us to maximize our compute resources. I think actually one thing to note here, just following up on your previous comment is that the problem of parallelization actually doesn't so much arise from 
needing to split validation and training. The splitting of that is is one problem, but it's typically not the main problem that we have when we're trying to do scaling of training. Gotcha. Okay. So really the problem is the size of the model or the different iterations of processing through the model when we're trying different learning rates and other different hyperparameters? Yeah. So I would say you can get three different points. So we're talking specifically about scaling machine learning, right? So like given a lot of compute, a lot of GPUs, what are different ways we can leverage this like large amount of resources? And so the three different ways that I would say are dealing with big models, so doing model parallelism, dealing with big amounts of data, so doing data parallelism, and then also a higher level, which is doing this hyperparameter tuning, as you alluded to, trying out all these different models in parallel with different knobs set to them. Now, we're going to get to talking about hyperparameter tuning in practice, but let's talk a little bit about the lower levels of what you have built on top of. So your library Tune is, I believe, built on Ray. Is that correct? Yep. So Ray is this general purpose distributed computing framework. We did a show about it. What are the problems that Ray solves and how are those solutions identified or leveraged in your library Tune? Yeah, so so Ray solves a larger problem of making distributed computing simple. And it provides two particular interfaces, a task interface and a actor interface, which allows us to do both stateless and stateful computations across a large cluster while seemingly programming like you were on a single process. So Tune specifically leverages these stateful interfaces, so these this actor interface that Ray provides to scale out the evaluation and tuning of different hyperparameter and neural networks. And furthermore, leverages this idea of the stateful computation and being able to interact with these stateful processes to implement a lot of distributed hyperparameter tuning algorithms that otherwise would need custom-made solutions or custom-made implementations that might not be available for the general public. Gotcha. And the library tune, could you give a little bit more description for what problem it solves? Right. So generally speaking, the problem that... So tune is a scalable library for parameter tuning and experiment execution. So it basically addresses three following problems. The first one is are these optimization algorithms, right? So complex machine learning tasks are, are largely dependent on these hyperparameters. And Tune provides dozens of algorithms that with easy-to-use abstractions that allow researchers to simplify that problem. So that's the first thing, optimization algorithms. The second one is to simplify distributed systems, and it leverages Ray for this. The high-level idea is here. Machine learning model developers, people who are training neural networks, they're rarely distributed system engineers. And so leveraging Ray and leveraging sort of these underlying distributed abstractions, Tune is able to provide an even higher level that abstracts these problems of fault tolerance, resource scheduling, auto scaling, logging, etc. from 
these small developers that only really want to care about their data set and their task and don't want to deal with all these distributed systems problems. Right, so that's the second one, simplifying distributed systems. And the third final one is that it reduces some code cruft for machine learning users. So oftentimes, especially when you get to distributed systems, there's a lot of things that you need to do in your machine learning code, including checkpointing. You need to visualize your results and you have to log your training outputs. So Tune is built to specifically handle those things providing a really simple to use abstraction for machine learning model developers to really ultimately reduce their code complexity and increase their developer velocity. So to rehash the three problems I would say that Tune really addresses are providing really nice to use optimization algorithms, simplifying the complexity of distributed hyperparameter tuning, and finally reducing the code complexity for these machine learning engineers. Okay, and the interface for programming in Tune. Could you give a little bit more color there? What am I actually specifying? Yeah, so at the very simplest level, you can just take your code, your machine learning model training code, you can put it into a function and you throw this function to Tune and Tune will automatically execute this function across all of the available resources on your cluster. Now, where this gets a little bit more interesting is that your model function might itself be distributed or parallelizable. And so you can provide a resource specification to Tune to have it automatically handle the scheduling of this particular parallelizable training function on the correct resources across the cluster. So, I mean, it's a very simple interface and the goal again is to reduce the code complexity and the requirement of like imposing and avoid imposing a framework upon the developer. Could we explore this through an example? Could you give an example of a reinforcement learning application and describe how that reinforcement learning application might be made more easy to train through Tune? Yeah, so how do we put this? So typically where where we might start off when you're entering Tune is you might already have a script that works, right? You don't want to add too much layer of a complexity upon an algorithm that doesn't quite work yet. So let's assume that there's a model developer for or someone who's doing reinforcement learning who already has their training script ready that works on a single machine. And now what they want to do is they really want to optimize the parameters or the hyperparameters of this reinforcement learning algorithm. And this is a very typical situation because reinforcement learning algorithms are just terribly sensitive to hyperparameters. So what they'll do is they'll, you know, take this training function that they already have and they'll just pass it into, they'll take this function, it's a Python function and they can just pass it into Tune. And Tune will serialize this Python function and ship it to different parts of the cluster to execute. And the same code will run in parallel across all these different machines, across all these different GPUs or CPUs, and Tune can interact with them and optimize kind of like this larger group of different hyperparameters, choosing the best hyperparameter to evaluate and killing off the ones that don't perform really well. So how do I specify what performance actually entails? Like, 
am I, as the reinforcement learning developer, am I just specifying a reward function and I'm optimizing for that reward function and then Tune is going to test with different hyperparameters and based on the reward function, it's going to kill off the branches of the decision tree that have the lower reward output? Yeah, so that's pretty good characterization. I would say that's probably most of what's happening in reinforcement learning. There's also other, like, so as you know, with any system, there's probably a variety of metrics that are outputted to measure progress. For reinforcement learning, the biggest one is this reward that, like, this average reward that it's getting throughout the evaluation of its environment. And this reward is then passed back through a callback to Tune, and Tune will then compare all these different rewards and decide which ones to start or which ones to kill, whether to try a new training run with different hyperparameters, etc. I have to say, though, one of the most common things in reinforcement learning is not actually the hyperparameter tuning, but rather taking advantage of the simplification of the distributed system that Tune provides. The reason is because oftentimes the reinforcement learning algorithms are so unstable and so parameter sensitive that what you're really trying to do is just trying to figure out whether or not the parameter is sensitive in the first place. And so a lot of our, our users who are reinforcement learning users, they end up just doing a simple a grid search across a particular parameter and they want to plot what is the sensitivity of this particular parameter across the grid. Mm. So in that case, they're not even trying to find some sort of like classification function. They're just trying to see the impact of some particular parameter. Yeah, so I mean, I just want to put a disclaimer out there. That's because I work with these reinforcement learning researchers and they might not be the ones who are, you know, tasked with optimizing an actual business level objective function, right? Their goal of the researcher is to provide, you know, some working new research that other people can build on. And and so, yeah, so you they end up trying to just evaluate what the goodness of a particular, and just understand the quality of a particular hyperparameter. Could we revisit the subject of hyperparameters? Define the term hyperparameter sweep. Yes. Yeah, so this word hyperparameter sweep comes in different flavors too. Some people will call it an experiment. Some people will call it like a tuning run, etc. And they're all kind of going at the same thing, which is that at the end of the day, there's there's a bunch of different knobs and you got to, you know, turn each knob in different ways so that you can find the best configuration of knobs. And what that means in practice, when you're actually leveraging your compute, it means that you're going to evaluate a bunch of different of these hyperparameter configurations with all these knobs set to different positions, and you're going to execute them all at once, and then you have this aggregate result across all these different runs that you're going to sort of gain some information from and or you know gain the best trying to find the best particular configuration from and so this sort of aggregate is what we call a sweep and can you tell me more about how tune would be used to execute a hyperparameter sweep right so specifically what happens here is 
again, we're going back to this mental model of a box being a particular training function, right? So the box, again, has, like, say it has three knobs. And this box is, in Python, it's, it's just a simple function. And what we'll do then is tune, you'll pass this into tune and you can specify a number of evaluations you want to have for this particular function. And you can also specify a space of different hyperparameters to sample from. So how do I describe this? I would say there's typically what you would do is you would specify something like, oh, for this particular knob, that's uniformly sample from zero to one. And because we have three knobs, we'll set, we'll provide three different of these distributions to sample from. So uniform sample zero to one for knob one, knob two, knob three. And after this like high level specification is given to Tune, Tune will then leverage Ray to execute these functions and sample from the given uniform distributions to get some three values for the three knobs and pass these values to this training function that is executing in Ray and then retrieve the result after the training function is done. And since Ray provides a really simple abstraction to parallelize and distribute code, this ends up working seamlessly across a large number of processors or even a large number of machines on the cloud. Can you say more about how those different execution runs are interacting with each other? Like, is data being shared across these different executions, across different processors? Yeah, so I guess there's two answers to this question. So one is like how much state is being shared across the different runs. And then also how do the different runs affect each other? So to answer the first question, oftentimes what we'll do in larger data sets is we'll either we'll download the data set onto a node. And so imagine you had a cluster of say five nodes where Tune is running over all of them. And on each node, you can run something like 64 different hyperparameter configurations at once. So 64 times five gives you 320 different hyperparameter configurations you can evaluate in parallel. But you actually have five nodes. So what you can do is you can just download the data onto each node and have everyone leverage that same data at the same time. So all 64 processors or you know training evaluations on that node will read from the same data source. And if your data is small enough to fit in memory, then you can also leverage Ray's shared memory abstractions so that you basically can speed up your read time when you're trying to you know, query this data to be trained because the shared memory is available for all 64 processors to access. So that's the state aspect. And you can say the same thing for, for like a large model that you might be downloading or some other other state that can be shared across the processors and the evaluations. So the second question, just to go back to this question of, you know, how do different evaluations affect each other? The second question is how does the optimization change given more and more evaluations done in parallel? Or, you know, how do the evaluations affect each other in terms of the optimization process? So one very standard technique for doing this is is something like successive halving, or it's a comparison-based hyperparameter tuning algorithm. 
the high level idea is that we will compare across all the different evaluations at the same time. And we will choose the best few to train for a larger amount of time. And we'll terminate the ones that are not in this select few. So basically the underperforming population of evaluations. And then what we'll do with the select few is we'll either allocate more resources to it, maybe allocate more GPUs to it, or we'll just train it for a longer amount of time and release the rest of the resources. So I guess to sum up here, it's really a comparative, a competitive sort of optimization algorithm that the performance is affected by well, like each individual evaluation, the performance of those things. Gotcha. And how much of this parallelization is taken care of by the Tune interface? Is there any kind of specification I would need to give to Tune to describe what kinds of data sharing I would want or what kinds of parallelism I would want? Yeah, so the data sharing aspect, it requires a little bit of hand-holding. And typically what you would do is in your training function, you could just specify like a location, maybe somewhere on the hard drive where you're just going to read data from. And the idea is that whoever reads that data first could... So actually, just to back up, oftentimes the cluster is doesn't have the data yet. So typical training functions will also include the downloading of data, especially when it's like a standard data set. Now, then the typical programming model for this is that if your training function is evaluated on a node that doesn't have the data set, it will download that data first. And what we'll do is we'll provide some utilities to avoid multiple writers writing to that same location. But what ends up happening is after the first download occurs, then everyone can read from that same data source. So there's a little bit of manual configuration involved. So... Wait, sorry, was there a second question to this? No, I was just asking for how much specification there was required by the developer, but I think you gave a good enough description for that. One other interface I'd like to explore is RLlib. So RLlib is a reinforcement learning library built on top of Ray. Is there a relationship between RLlib and Tune? Yeah, I can give a quick story, actually. So as you know, Ray has taken an academic position of being a reinforcement learning, you know, like a reinforcement learning library. We're providing some, a system that tackles these emerging AI applications, specifically highlighting reinforcement learning as one of these emerging AI applications. Now, I think the story begins at the start of my grad school time, where the first thing I was doing was doing some reinforcement learning research. And the first task was just to look at how we can validate Ray as a tool for reinforcement learning research. So I was in charge of the, you know, like basically breaking Ray, implementing these RL algorithms and telling Robert or Philip or Jan, who are, you know, other people who work on the Ray team that, look, these abstractions just don't work for this particular algorithm that I'm supposed to create. And so, so my friend, Eric, Eric Liang, who's who's now the maintainer of RLlib, and I, we would you know implement these RL algorithms, and the typical experience would go something like, oh, we find this new RL algorithm that we want to implement, and we look at the code, 
the pseudocode that's in the paper, it's 10 lines of pseudocode. How hard could this be? And you know, three weeks later, we still don't have the reproduced results because we've been trying to get the hyperparameters to perform correctly. And it just seems like everything is super unstable. The RL algorithm doesn't work across different environments, etc. And at some point we had a realization where, hey, look, this is not sustainable. We're gonna spend all of grad school doing this. So let's just automate this tuning process. So we built Tune. The whole goal of Tune is so that it could just run a bunch of different hyperparameters at once and leverage the cloud for that. Eventually it grew out to become its own standalone tool for you know fully scaling hyperparameter tuning and expanded beyond this reinforcement learning use case. Can you tell me more about the difference between the academic environment and the business application environment? You've now basically straddled those two areas after spending time in the Rise Lab as well as the company that you now work at any scale. So tell me about those two environments. Oh, yeah, that's that's a pretty fun question. I think it's a very unique, maybe there's two or three other labs in the US that have this sort of flavor. But I think in Berkeley, there's a strong emphasis from the advisors that what we build, has, like especially for systems, what we build has to be useful. I think actually this might be particularly a yawn stoica mentality, but you know, we really care about adoption and we really care about the system actually, you know, being leveraged by researchers, developers, industry, etc. So a lot of my grad school was actually spent closing GitHub issues. And obviously you would do some papers on the side, you'd write some research about some interesting problem that came up while developing the tool, but there is a lot of effort being put into kind of growing this open source community. I would actually also add that the research that we did, the research that we published was really kind of just, it fell out of this open source work. So one of the works that I worked on, which was this like resource allocation when doing hyperparameter tuning was kind of, so the, the high level idea is how do we parallelize? We given a K number of processors or a K number of GPUs, how do we best leverage these resources in a, a, a deadline constrained hyperparameter tuning setting? And this was very much motivated by user requests asking like, how do I know how much to parallelize, right? And what happens if I have a time constraint? How do I maximize my accuracy there? And so we did some research on that. And there's a lot of other research projects that kind of just came out of the practical needs from building the system and making it usable in real life. So that's kind of the academic world. Now moving into industry, I think now that we have this company Anyscale, which is founded to commercialize Ray and also provide you know a large compute platform for developers to use and scale their applications, I would say a lot of the flavor from this academic setting naturally falls over into the Anyscale setting. We still continue to, you know, do GitHub issues. We still continue to find interesting problems to work on. I would say there's a much stronger focus now on users and honing down that specific subset of customers that we want to, you know, target and grow and help define 
like the future of Ray in a more productionized environment. So what's interesting about AnyScale is it does seem to be a company that's positioned for where the puck is headed because I think that <laughs> enterprises have enough trouble just getting supervised learning algorithms to work productively. And any scale is well positioned to productionize reinforcement learning. In what sense do you feel it's too early? Like where are the rough edges around reinforcement learning? What are the bottlenecks around reinforcement learning that make it tough to productionize these days? And where are we going with enterprise reinforcement learning? Oh, that's super interesting, Jeff. I would say probably... So I know a couple of successful use cases of enterprise reinforcement learning, and you probably use it too. So from what I've heard, Facebook has made great progress leveraging reinforcement learning to maximize notification engagement. And because there's a bunch of social networks in Silicon Valley, I think a lot of other companies that have these large social networks are also trying the same thing, trying to use this enterprise-level reinforcement learning specifically like trying to increase engagement on these social network platforms. So that's one big area. And slowly that might trickle down to some other applications. The other big use case that we've seen for reinforcement learning is, and I'm not too familiar with this, but I think supply chain optimization seems to have made some nice progress by leveraging reinforcement learning just given our user calls and given the blog posts that other third parties have written about using reinforcement learning tools that Ray has. So supply chain optimization, notifications, and finally, I think JP Morgan has found success in a very particular niche of, of their trading market to somehow use reinforcement learning to place great, what's it called? It's like trade, it's like some sort of trading strategy or some I don't know the particular details, but they've found great success using it. They've gone into public saying like, hey, we're using reinforcement learning with Ray to maximize trade executions or yeah, to maximize profit on trade executions. And we've shown some great results. So those are kind of the three cases that we've seen. And the main problem moving forward is to find these use cases where reinforcement learning is just going to be, you know, 10x the other existing solutions. I mean, you got to love <laughs> those examples you gave. They're so well-defined as reinforcement learning problems. It's like, you know, notification engagement. Okay, you know, I send a bunch of notifications under different reinforcement learning suggestions, and it's very easy to note which ones of these result in more engagement. Okay, that's a very easy reward function. You know, JP Morgan trading, okay, do they make more money or less money? You know, very very well-defined <laughs> reward right. function. Supply chain optimization, does the package arrive faster? Like very well-defined yeah. reward function. It almost seems like that's if you, you know, compare it to a classification algorithm, you know, classification algorithm doesn't necessarily have such a great built-in, you know, feedback loop as to whether you're successfully classifying anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, this idea of having a proper reward function is pretty important. And you can actually look at like any system and say, hey, look, we should just optimize the system. And we know what the metric is, right? We know it has to go faster. And so then we can just throw reinforcement learning at it. I think perhaps one of the bigger bottlenecks is just the availability of 
data. And maybe that's wrong, but my 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 hunch is that a lot of times the feedback that we're going to get from a particular interaction is just going to be so delayed. And so it's going to be hard to use reinforcement learning to sort of navigate that signal versus noise trade-off to find what actually is the reward and how does that propagate through the different actions that we took. So yeah, so that's one thing. Now, on the other hand, classification is it's good for what it does, right? It's good for these well-defined tasks of like, oh, hey, look, this spreadsheet, I have a bunch of things and I want to fill out this label or I want to fill out this particular column. So that's just, you know, we have all this data, we throw it at it and it's very well-defined. Okay, and then we can measure the accuracy and that's, you know, let's just move on with our lives. So yeah, I would say maybe one of the hardest parts about reinforcement learning is finding a particular problem where where kind of all of like the requirements fall together of having a lot of fast feedback, having great reward signal, and having a lot of different things you can try at once. All right. Well, let's close off by just talking a little bit about the framework landscape. Like, okay, we had Spark, we got TensorFlow, and got this new thing called Ray, which is its own ecosystem. And I talked to Jan a little bit about this when he came on the show several months ago. But what are we doing? Why do we need another one of these <laughs> these ecosystems? What is it about Ray that makes something new? What is new about it? And why did we need yet another framework? Right. So that's a good question. I think one of the biggest things is closing this gap between development and deployment. So deployment can obviously mean multiple things. In the context of hyperparameter tuning, it's simply running this distributed system in the first place. So because Ray you know, provides a really simple deployment strategy, it provides auto-scaling, it provides the ability to leverage these distributed computational resources in a really simple way, that barrier to entry for, for users trying to do distributed hyperparameter tuning is just significantly lower now. And you can say the same thing for reinforcement learning, right? Like, it's not easy to program a really efficient, scalable reinforcement learning algorithm, let alone like 30. And because Ray provides, you know, this really simple abstraction for dealing with data, fast data movement, and parallelizing and scaling across clusters, that becomes simple and now reinforcement learning researchers can benefit. The broader Ray vision is to sort of democratize distributed computing and make it really easy for developers to write their distributed applications, scale them, not worry about the complexities that might come with running, you know, just running distributed systems in the first place. And this is kind of a niche that isn't well supported in the current landscape, right? So like you mentioned Spark, Spark is great for BSP. It's not great for async execution. It's not great for these fine-grained tasks that that you can do with Ray. You mentioned TensorFlow. TensorFlow is a model development framework, but it's not itself a distributed execution framework. And typically in order to scale up your TensorFlow application, you have to implement some other distributed layer. So yeah, so I would say Ray kind of sits in this place where 
machine learning researchers want to go distributed, but just kind of have to face this gap and, and Ray's kind of trying to sit in that gap right now. Richard, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. 